Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Happy New Year, and welcome to 2023. Thank you for joining us on the Thinking Elixir podcast, and let's jump into the news. First up, Elixir Lang had a new blog post highlighting some of the XDoc features. So if you are new to Elixir and XDocs, then this is a great resource that pulls a lot of nice tips together. So some of these tips include the UI design just being something that's easy to read and work with, how it links out to source code, how XDoc supports custom guides where you can write and mark down and include those in the sidebar in the menu, which are more than just like, this is how this function works, but you know whatever you want that guide to be, which includes you know more complex examples and even the readme. Also in the sidebar, you can do custom grouping of modules, functions, and pages. It supports full text search, and I love that it doesn't even need to connect to a server to do it. It just does it locally with JavaScript. Then there are keyboard shortcuts to navigate around in the docs, but then also to hit G to jump to other docs and other hex packages. Then there's the version dropdown, which is super helpful. Like if you're on a different version of a library than what is ever the current version, you can drop down and get access to the docs for the version that you are using. Also, you can have like the live book integration where you can say, open this up in a live book doc tests. What I love about doc tests is they actually get executed as code in your tests, but they are displayed and rendered in the docs so that it's like, this is a working example and you're guaranteed that that example is always up to date. And the other one that prompted this whole blog post was really about cheat sheets. David, you want to tell us about that? Well, Hugo Baruna is actually going to tell us a bit about it. He used the new XDoc cheat sheet feature to add a couple of cheat sheets for Ecto. What are cheat sheets, really? I mean, it's it's just a one-pager, right? It's the smallest amount of information to display, but in a very organized manner to provide examples of you know how to use the library, for example. And Ecto is a great place to do that. So... Hugo Baruna created a cheat sheet for Ecto, and it's up there now. So one of the cheat sheets that's up there is like how to do basic CRUD things. So there's a, lots of little examples on how to fetch by an ID, how to get some records by an attribute, get the first record, get the last record, use the bang functions to you know raise exceptions instead of nilling out or error tuples, querying. I always have to look up querying things. So a cheat sheet's good for quick references, so that way you don't have to like go diving into the comprehensive, you know, documentation. Yeah, those cheat sheets are just really good. And they're inspired by other cheat sheets out there in the internet. So this isn't completely novel to us, but it is kind of novel that it's in XDoc, which is the point. Yeah, that's really cool. One feature of XDoc that wasn't mentioned in that blog post on Elixir Lang that I was I was kind of expecting to see was the, it's relatively new as well. It's the admonition blocks. You can like stylize and call out like uh, sections of your guide. So you can say like this paragraph is a tip. So put it in a, you know, a purple colored block or something, maybe move it to the side, something along those lines. Those are cool little features too. I don't see that used often enough. Cheat sheets for the record, they're using admonition blocks like extensively. It's like basically all they are. (laughs) Anyway, I noticed that there was a printer icon in the top of these cheat sheets as well. If you're putting two and two together here, you press that little printer button and then you can print it and then put it on your your desk or something like that, right? Put it up on your wall next to your computer so that way you don't have to go to the website and look it up there. You can just glance over at the cheat sheet on your wall. 
especially helpful for those frequently used, you know, libraries that you use, like maybe Ecto. Anyway, that's enough about Cheat Sheets, but Xdocs is indeed awesome. So it's good to revisit all the cool things that it's doing. And next up, Luke Galea created a live book online. This one takes a little bit of like head twisting to like get your head into this. But like basically he creates what appears to be a Python Jupyter notebook that has an open and collab link at the top. And collab is Google Colab, where you can get access to machines with GPUs and everything. So at the top of this little notebook is a link says open and collab, which appears to then set up a notebook in Google Colab that compiles Elixir and builds Elixir and starts up Livebook. So it actually gets Livebook running in Google Colab, which then gives you access to GPUs with 16 gigabytes of video RAM. And you can be up and running in like 10 minutes and have stable diffusion with Bumblebee and Elixir and Livebook all running in there. So it's a a funny roundabout way to get there, but it actually seems to be pretty cool. Yeah. And that's on their free tier too. So if you're willing to put in the work, (laughs) you can can get a little access to to their their GPUs, which is pretty, pretty nifty. Pretty mind-bending way to get there, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> First, you open up this other notebook. <laughs> then you get to the real notebook stuff. All right, next up, Alexi has released a, one of the core members of Elixir, by the way, uh, released a library called, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stab at it here, Finitomata. F- Finitomata. We'll go with that one. Finitomata. That will read your plant UML or mermaid chart and create a state machine from it. Yeah, it's probably Finitomata. So what this is doing is it is providing boilerplate for that state machine implementation. So imagine you have a graph of a thing that needs to go through a workflow, right? And and this workflow has got, you know, box one points to box two, points to box three. These things need to happen, right? And you got an end state to it. That looks an awful lot like a, a state machine. So finite model, you know, you provided that that text of that graph that you made. And then it will generate the boilerplate for handling those transitions in your Elixir code. You start in your Elixir code, right? But you you give it that big here doc string with your plant UML or your mermaid chart in there. And it generates the, <laughs> this is crazy. It generates the boilerplate code for you, which is really cool. Obviously, it doesn't do the business logic for you, but that's the point, right? Is that it generates all the other unfun stuff around it. So that way you can focus on the business logic. I thought that was just a really interesting thing to do. And I thought it was pretty helpful. As a developer, one of my first thoughts was like, how did he do that? <laughs> now, and and he has to parse that stuff. He has to create like a token. That's a lot of work. He went through a lot of work to get this to, to, to happen. Anyway, and it sounds like he's got some other supporting libraries that will be coming up around it to kind of fill out this idea. For example, it's, this is not out yet, but he was talking about like, what would it look like if, if this could be backed by Ecto too? And that would be really interesting. So yeah, wanted to highlight that. We got some links in the show notes. If that's interesting to you, go check out the library. And next up, the Membrane Framework has a library called Membrane RTC Engine. And that particular library within their whole framework announced version 0.8. So this finishes their simulcast work, which means that the quality of the video that you're receiving from the server is automatically adjusted by the server based on the network conditions. So just kind of like imagine that you wanted to create your own Zoom type of video meeting where it's hosted by a server and connected and streaming video and audio. You can actually do something like that 
They actually even have demo projects where you can set up that kind of a thing where it's using WebRTC, you know, that it's able to adjust based on the network. So if I'm on my phone and I don't have the greatest connection, it'll automatically downgrade the video and just kind of responsively do that. And that is just really cool because all of that membrane framework is available in Elixir, which is really impressive, just what they built there and what's available there. So if you're doing anything with Elixir and video streaming and processing in real time, you know, like as it's going real time processing a video stream, you should definitely be looking at membrane if you aren't already. Yeah, Zoom's an easy example because we a lot of us remote workers use it like every day. But yes. <laughs> but there's other cool stuff too, like f- folks that go out on onto the field, right? So you got their your backend in Elixir and you've got folks on the field that might be uploading or needing to stream the videos. Like this is this is a good use for that too. It's not necessarily people setting on a meeting. <laughs> right. Yeah. It could be something cool like Twitch, you know, with live streams. Yeah. And- <laughs> Very important framework. And I wish I knew more about it. Well, I'll have to, maybe I'll do that for project night or something. All right, last up and next up, Owen Bickford has released some early support for pass keys in browsers and mobile devices. All right, what are pass keys? Kind of a new thing. It's been making the blogosphere rounds here recently, but pass keys, I'll, gi- I'll give a, a dumbed down version of it. They're passwords stored on the devices along with your application provided user ID. So these are unlocked with some sort of gesture and that gesture being something like a fingerprint unlock, uh, face ID, something on your device, right? Some secure way of unlocking it that's personal to you. I reckon that like pin codes, I don't, I don't know where pin codes go in into that equation because that's not necessarily unique to you. I guess it could be. It's your pin code. Anyway, the passkey represents you to that asking application. So it's not exactly like the little remember this device because you'll see that on the web too. You'll have to check that box for it to like not ask you for a two second factor thing, right? But it's not exactly like that, but it is similar since they tend to be tied to a device. (laughs) But they don't have to be tied to a device because these passkeys can be synced between your devices, like between your Mac and your iPhone or your Android to your your Chrome. And I, I did check, sorry, Linux folks, no sync for you. I mean, passkeys will work, you just won't get syncing between devices. The workflow is a little bit different because passkeys are a way to like register with an application and log in. So it implies that your 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 onboarding experience for that user might be a little bit different, right? You have to create that account and then like onboard and fill in the required info like email and name and all that jazz. So we got a lot of links to explain what that is. And Owen's doing a wonderful job documenting that and creating some turnkey solutions for leveraging pass keys. So go check those out. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Chris Nelson. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited that you could join us because on the show, we talk a lot about LiveView here. And not everyone can use LiveView in a project or a site, and maybe it's not the right thing for every situation. And we totally get that. So this is particularly true when you're embedding your content 
into another person's website where they are hosting a little window to your content. You've created a solution called Live State that can help people in that situation. And I'm looking forward to talking more about that and how that can help people, how that works and what problem it really helps address. But before we get into that, I'd love to just hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I live in uh, lovely Cincinnati, Ohio. I am co-founder of a company called Launch Scout. You know, I do custom software development, uh, web and mobile apps mostly. And uh, we started getting into Elixir. Oof, it's been a little while now. I looked on a t-shirt in my closet and I was at the 2017 Elixir Comp was the first Elixir Comp I remember. So at least that long. Really, uh, we're doing Rails before that. Just got really excited about Elixir as a way to have some of the same benefits, but not hit some of the same walls we had been finding when Ruby on Rails apps got super popular and well used and tons of traffic. Yeah, we, we love Elixir and uh, excited to talk more about it whenever we can. Well, cool. I love that we uh, we can judge how long we've been in the community by the, the t-shirts from the conference. <laughs> it's the only way I'd remember. All right. So first, I'd love to jump in and help define the problem. So help us figure out like what problem is this really helping to solve? Because, you know, the first response, well, why not just use live view? So like there are situations where we can't. So why why might we need to reach for live state? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way to put it. And we have been excited about Live View and are using it successfully on uh, multiple applications. And uh, we we love it. Problem I was specifically trying to solve was what do we do in the case where we're talking about an application that isn't even hosted by Phoenix? like an embedded app that might be anything from uh, a customer support widget or you know you have a statically generated website and now you want to drop in a shopping cart or some sort of customer order reservation thing and with that problem where you know we kind of have a little piece of a larger app the kind of conventional way that people usually solve that problem a vendor will give you like a little snippet of JavaScript that will drop in an iframe somewhere on your page. And while that's functional, anything that you want to do to customize it is completely proprietary, if it even exists at all. It's also kind of um, difficult to integrate that well into the rest of what's going on in the app on that page, if that's something you want to do. And for some of those reasons, I have kind of been a big proponent for a long time of custom HTML elements being a better way to solve the problem of how do we do embedded apps. One of the things that gives you that you just really don't have any other way is you can drop in an embedded app, but still have as much styleability as the user of that embedded app as you would like to have. There's something baked in the HTML elements called shadow parts, which lets you define levels of customization via CSS that are really as powerful as you want to make them. So I was interested in pursuing that approach over the typical iframe approach. And my first attempt there was, I wonder if I could get live view to uh, render into a custom element. And I was working on that like at the end of last year and really kind of delve deeply into the bowels of live view, both client and server side, everything that's going on there. And and actually got as far as like a simple example of a live view appearing in uh, a custom element. 
But what I had to do to get there was pretty abominable. <laughs> I really had to to do hacks that I knew were never going to make it back into live view proper and really shouldn't. And, you know, just had to completely gut large portions of the JavaScript library. And then eventually I hit a wall where I realized that to go further, I'd have to completely make my own rendering engine and replace HEEX. And it was just awful. So that made me say like, you know what? Let's take a step back and, and really think about this a little more. And basically what my thinking ended up being was if I'm building this kind of like, I want to drop in a component, I'm not really sure that having it server rendered in Elixir is like the most important thing or maybe even the most compelling thing. What I really want is a simple way to build those things. And basically, I started with the supposition that the reason that LiveView is so compelling is not just we can do everything in Elixir, but it simplifies the problems of building two different applications, one on the client and one on the server. What if I could take the patterns that are awesome about LiveView, which I think comes down to this pattern of how we manage state in an application like this, what if I could take those same patterns and apply them to a non-live view client? What I came down to is the core idea that, that live view and gen server and even things like Redux, they all bring the same pattern, which is we have functions, which I, uh, I've been trying to call event state reducers because I haven't seen another good name for these things. We have functions that take an event, the current state, and they return a new state. And could I apply that same pattern in the nine live view environment? And so what I hit upon is, okay, what if I have my front end dispatch events and subscribe to state? And so my front end components don't do anything other than render their current state and dispatch events. So they're really, really simple. And that kind of core idea is what I've been pursuing with, with live state. You're not writing your front end on Elixir, but because all you're doing is rendering state and dispatching events, you can still have really simple code, although it is JavaScript or TypeScript, which uh, for that particular environment, a sacrifice that I was willing to make, and I may not hate on the JavaScript TypeScript as much as others, and that's okay. When I hear you describe that, I think, well, that sounds like you might just be using something like React on the front end. I can hook it in as a component in a static website or something like that, and I or a, you know embed a a widget by pulling that in with like a React style component, and it might be making these API calls out to an external service. How is this different from that? A couple of ways. First, I, I think the main way is um, when you're building apps like that with a Re React front end and a back end API. You basically have state in two different places, and it's your job to manage that and keep that in sync, as well as manage all the API calls, sending and receiving. And I was kind of starting with the idea, the whole way we build apps with doing the request response lifecycle from the front end to the back end is, is maybe not ideal. And so what I'm really trying to do is simplify things so that state lives in one place and that's on the server. 
So I have a channel server and that state is the source of it is in the Elixir app and the client receives the state when it changes. And that is completely something that is the developer you don't have to deal with at all. And so I'm really trying to simplify the whole process of how we build that kind of application over the typical React approach where, okay, now you got to build a REST API or GraphQL and have that client on your side and manage all that lifecycle and figure out where you want what state. All that stuff can go away. That's really what I think is a huge benefit, right? A selling point for live view and this dynamic server side rendered very fast responsiveness with web sockets and things is that, yeah, I don't have to have all of those extra layers of how do I serialize my data? How do I get it out there through an API? How do I store it on the front end in, you know, I have to write the own logic of how to store it and access it. What I'm hearing you say then is I really like the live view model. I see a lot of those benefits, but I need something else that I can hook in at the client side to handle that piece. That's exactly right. And, uh, live view by building on top of Phoenix channels. I mean, Phoenix channels, I feel like maybe doesn't get enough love. There's so much power there. And really, when I built live state, it's essentially just a very thin layer over Phoenix channels. And both the client and the server work incredibly well. And so that they had kind of all the abstractions and tools I need to be able to do what I wanted to do with without really needing to to rule my own anything very much, to be honest. I'm mostly just leveraging what, what Phoenix Channels gives me. Okay, so so you've created this library called Live State. I'm sure there's a client-side component, you know, that has to be unique that hooks up to this Phoenix Channel, but like, kind of give us an overview of what's happening on the server, what's happening on the client. So there are a couple different pieces. There is on the server side, the library is uh, live underscore state. And that's also where the GitHub repo is that has all the other pieces as well. But at its core on the server side, there's surprisingly little code. Essentially, at its core, we have a channel behavior where you add a Phoenix channel to your app, you use the live state channel behavior, and then you implement several callbacks. You have an init callback where you build the initial state for your uh, live state application. And then just like uh, live view, you have some handle event callbacks that you implement that take an event and a payload and essentially return the new state. Optionally, they can get to the socket if you need to, but I am maintaining the state on the socket assigns for you with the default channel behavior. There's also a handle info callback so that you can, uh, you know, handle messages that come in. If you need to pub sub across different live state channels, that's pretty easy to do. So that's the server side. On the client side, there's a layered approach where there's a uh, low level live state JavaScript object library that you can use to push events up and uh, subscribe to state changes. And then there's a couple different abstractions over top of that. One for wrapping custom elements. And in that case, what I decided to do there is we already have a concept of events in the front end in the form of custom DOM events. And basically what I'm saying is we can just take those and push them up over the channel. 
basically I, I kind of handle that for you, if you will. And then you can define, okay, these are the properties of my element that I want to have subscribed to the state that's managed on that server. So essentially your custom element code is just rendering state, dispatching events that are just custom DOM events, just, just standard. There's also another um, abstraction over live state that's a React hook. Somebody asked for that. I've done React for lots of reasons. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of that over uh, custom elements. You know, like a lot of people, I got pretty bad framework fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, man, if there's stuff that's just built into the browser and I know is not going to change as fast and does what I need to do, why wouldn't I just use that stuff? And so that's kind of my 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 thinking on that subject. But nevertheless, React hooks, as far as React goes, are pretty powerful ways to do things. And there's a React hook where you just can use live state. And now, you know, your React components are going to render based on live state state changes, and they're going to be able to push events as well. Does live state have anything to do with hydrating components like on the first render? Or is that is that outside the scope of it? This is only after the page has been, you know, statically rendered, and then you're just hooking up like live interaction after that point. Live state's really designed to, to kind of solve a different problem in that live view. Whereas, you know, I have a page that like it's outside of my control how how it's rendered. You know, it's served up, and I'm talking about elements within that page. There's not that same hydration process, if you will, in the case of a custom elements that's entirely handled in the, the the client side. Gotcha. When I think of a solution that might fit this, I think about the discuss D I S Q U S style. It's like where I have a static site, a static blog, and I want to have comments on there so I can drop in this discuss widget thing, which automatically load up the comments that people have left for that article. And as you navigate around to different articles, it, it has context. Is this something like that? Yeah, actually, the, uh, the very first blog post I did kind of introducing live state, I built exactly that. I built a comments widget for that page itself. So if you read to the bottom of the post, the comments widget itself is built in live state. And so I just posted a little Phoenix server, I, I think on Heroku, I think it's, it's just still there that basically you can put that element on any page that you want and it will uniquely identify those comments based on the URL, which is just from the page itself. And because it's custom element, I basically let our designers just style it however they wanted to. But if you looked at the rendering of it, it's just like completely you know, there's no styling at all. It's just like very simple list items. And yeah, that whole approach of, of adding a comment section was one of the first things I did and, and all the code and kind of step-by-step -step how everything works is all in that initial blog post on it. But yeah, that was actually the first example I wanted to use because I thought it was a great kind of canonical example of this is the problem that I'm trying to solve with live state. I love being able to solve that with Elixir. So that's really cool. Yeah, I remember we we tried to build do something similar at a previous company Mark and I worked together at actually and this was before the time of Heeks, so maybe that changes things and it was it was actually pretty early live view days back then. But I remember we had to jump through a few hoops to get an iframe live view working 
on another domain. Mm. Fortunately, it wasn't necessarily like a widget that we wanted just anyone to go install. So I think we did have a little more control, but I remember we had to, I think I was the dev who had to get it working and I can't even remember all the things I had to do, but I remember it being painful and I do remember getting it working and I didn't have to necessarily modify like source live view code, but I do remember cookies modifying cookies was involved and probably less secure things than what you should be doing might have may or may not have been involved. And I remember one of the things is we needed to have the hosting page pass data into the iframe to give it some things like size. So like as the web page, like the browser resized, we wanted the iframe to resize appropriately because everything inside would reflow. But like if it was on a mobile phone, we didn't want it to be a terrible experience. So yeah, there was a fair bit involved with that. But I think, and this is coming back to a question to you, one of the things we wanted was for us to isolate our CSS styles and our appearance so that the hosting page wouldn't just screw it all up. So how do you deal with that? Or or are you in situations where you're hosting it on something where you have more control? That's really the power that custom elements give you as an author and as a consumer of those custom elements. So with my comments widget, I deliberately took the approach of, I want the person who's consuming this comments widget to be able to style it like crazy. And so the way that I did that is I basically declared what's called a shadow part, which is a a fancy, scary word that essentially just means like, I want to allow this bit of my internal DOM structure to be stylable from the outside. And I did that everywhere because I wanted to give that control. But I could also have taken the opposite approach of saying, I want to completely define the styles for what this element rendered. And the outside page has no control at all. I completely control the look of the field as the component author. But I can also do anything in between. I don't hear as much talk about how much power that gives us as people who are both consuming and creating components that are being used across applications, maybe that I'm not, you know, that are not all hosted in the same way or by the same people. I think the discuss example of having the embedded widget with like comments, it sounds like it was really where you started from. Like that was your point. Like, yes, I want to make sure that works. Do you have any other examples of what kinds of things that people are, are wanting to do or what you are envisioning is possible? Uh, yeah. Once I got that that comments example working, the next problem that became interesting to me was, what if I have a problem where I really want or need to be able to drop in multiple components into a page that I myself don't host, and those components need to collaborate together to be able to actually implement a solution to the problem? So after kind of initially kind of getting the infrastructure to see that, yeah, I can have multiple components, they can share a live state instance, they can find each other, all that works. The kind of classic example that I came to is, what if I am building a website using a static site generator? And this is actually how we host our website. I think we use Gatsby, but you could use Eleventy. There are lots of them out there. And if you're just mainly building a website, you know, it's it's a pretty good way to go. But what if I get to the point where I've built a site like that 
And now I want to add just a shopping cart functionality. So in that situation, what, what most people do, because it's, it's easy and possible is you just drop in buy buttons that then just bounce you over to another site to complete the checkout process. And that's okay. But the problem is what if I want to stay within my site and gradually add items to a cart and then check out when I'm done? Like, you know, mostly the way sites work. Well, if you think about that problem, if you're just talking about static HTML, you have at least two different components that need to work together. You have a component that adds the item to a cart, and then somewhere else in that page, you have the cart itself, which probably has a little icon and then maybe pops open a modal with details, that kind of thing. I've been building a solution to that here in the, in the last couple months. It's been working out pretty well. And it's essentially, you know, two different custom elements. There's an add item custom element and a cart custom element. You're able to to put those on any HTML page that you want. They'll manage finding each other. I'm able to declaratively mark one of those elements as kind of owning the state and sharing it with the other elements. And there's still kind of rules for building these kind of elements is all they do are dispatch events, render state, and possibly respond to events. So they're under the covers, really, really simple. You know, not a lot of complicated JavaScript, TypeScript code to write. And then on the server, the Elixir code to do it, you know, it's just basically one live state channel that handles the events to add items to the cart. You know, all the rest of the backend code is just kind of standard Elixir. If you had multiple components on the page, would each one have its a separate channel to a separate live state server on the back end? Uh, no, actually. So what I'm doing is I'm having the cart element. I'm having it own the state. And so it has a connection to the live state server. The other components are sharing that same live state instance and connection. So they're all pushing their events up over that channel, receiving the state changes. And because each component is kind of subscribing to those state events, it'll just render its states when it needs to, and it'll just push events when it, when it needs to. The components are just aware that they're attached to a live state instance. They're not directly aware of one another. They're just aware that okay, I need to create this live instance, live state instance to share it out, or I'm consuming one. So I need to go ask for one and they just find each other through. It's kind of like a context. I ended up using something that kind of did that for me. I didn't have to build that myself. Nice. So is this something that, you know, as a co-founder of Launch Scout and you're a consultancy, is this something that you've actually been deploying for customer solutions and and seeing it actually be successful in in production, in the wild. Yeah, so we're just starting to build things out. Uh, we're using it on our website itself to do that comment section now in a few posts. Um, and that's, you know, I haven't had to touch that at all. That's been working fine. And then, you know, this kind of drop-in e-commerce thing that I've been talking about, that's something we're kind of looking at maybe productizing just because the experience of, you know, if I'm using a static site generator and now I want to just 
add a shopping cart. You know, I know H this is for the audience that like, I know HTML and CSS. I can do all that. I've got a style and design that I'm super happy with on my site. And now I don't want to like move it over to Shopify or whatever and have to host my site somewhere else. I just want to keep it where it is, but have a shopping cart and that kind of experience that I can style the way I want it to. And so productizing that is something we're kind of looking at and evaluating. And uh, we've kind of got early betas out there that we're, that we're playing around with. So that might be one of the first big production implementations of it. But at this point, you know, I'm kind of just looking for more data of where are the edges and are there more things that are needed and kind of gathering that data from more people using it in the wild is what I'm looking to do. At its core, especially on the Elixir side, it's really, really simple. <laughs> it really is just a thin layer over Phoenix channels. So that kind of gives me a good feeling. There's not a ton that can go wrong because I just, you know, there's not really a ton of stuff there. <laughs> so Chris, I know you also spoke at ElixirConf 2022, and we'll have a link to your presentation there because I, I imagine, you know, it's really helpful to get your head around this if you can see the demos that you are able to do in a presentation. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to talk about all this stuff with just audio and, and not be able to actually show the code and demo. So definitely we'll, I'm sure, share out the link to that talk and that's that's posted online. What I think is really interesting is static sites are a great solution. If I'm, you know, the person who wants to have a website, I'm not a web dev, you know, like I am all about this other thing. Like maybe I'm creating things and selling things and I want to have my own website as opposed to going through like Shopify or something like that or Etsy or something else because I have more control that way. But I don't want to have to worry about databases going down or getting flooded with spam that's going to knock out just because my database is, it's a light instance, you know, all those things happen. So I love the idea of a static site, but then having the ability to maybe work with someone like you to say, I want it to be able to do these extra things that are beyond that. I think live state lets us as developers provide those solutions, but keeping it all still in Elixir without doing the whole React front end. Because I think that's the default, that you either go React on the front end or you do iframes. And iframes, when you're doing a shopping cart, that would be terrible. Yeah, yeah, that would be be pretty challenging. In a lot of ways, Live State is kind of bringing together two, I guess, passions of mine or things I'm excited about. You know, as I mentioned, I've been excited about Elixir for a long time. I've also been excited about custom elements, believe it or not, for almost as long. I feel like we've had this... As a developer, you know, when I very first learned HTML, my first question is, great, how do I write my own HTML tag to do what I want to do? <laughs> and I only had to wait 25 years, and now I have a solution <laughs> to this problem. The first time I heard about it was with AngularJS. That's the first Angular version. Was it around longer than that, or did they... I mean, it probably was, right? But maybe they were the first ones to really introduce the idea to a, a bigger bigger public? I don't know. You tell me. Custom elements, really, those specs came out of, I think they were proposed by what was going on in the second version of Angular, actually, like the rewrite to when they tried to go to Angular 2. That was when I first remember they started proposing these specifications for custom HTML elements. But I think originally a lot of it came out of Chrome 
itself kind of uh, leveraging what they were using to build the new HTML elements that came along with HTML5. If you go and actually look in your browser and inspect things like a video element, you will see a shadow DOM, which is like the core piece of the custom element spec in those things. So it's actually been there a long time. They just kind of standardized it and, you know, eventually got it adopted by, you know, Firefox. And, you know, at this point, it's in all the major browsers as standards do. It just took a long time to go from, hey, it would be really great if we could do this across all the browsers to like, okay, yeah, it's here and it's implemented and now we can actually use it. And it's really probably only been the past couple years that it's really across that yeah, now it's viable, kind of a threshold. But at this point, yeah, it's been around for a while, and being able to implement components that doesn't tie us to a single framework is, is pretty compelling to me. Being able to write the back end for those things in Elixir, that's also great, I hope. <laughs> yeah, just to uh, put years on the timeline here, since we're talking about it, Angular JS was released in 2010. Angular version two, when they moved over to, I think that was the TypeScript rewrite there, and they dropped the JS part of it, so it's just Angular, like what we know today, was released in 2016, so that's six years after Angular JS was released. I, I, I remember it being a shorter time span than that, but wow, how time flies. Well, they talked about it for a super long time and have <laughs> all kinds of different... Yeah, I remember them saying, oh, this is going to be all web components from the beginning. And then, of course, it wasn't. And yeah, anyway, yeah that's another long story. <laughs> you know, we're talking about Angular 1, which is 2010. We're on Angular 15 today in 2022. Oh, wow. Yeah, so <laughs> that's Angular 1. We're up to 15 versions. But Google tends to do that. They have those <laughs> fast major releases so they can break things quickly <laughs> and stop supporting it. It's a rant over. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for coming. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for making us talk about so much JavaScript on Thinking Elixir. My bad. <laughs> so, Chris, with the project Live State, are you looking for people to help out? Is there a place where people can get involved? Definitely. So, one of the main things I'm looking for is, you know, if, if you have a problem like this where you're trying to particularly build an embedded app, you know, does this solve your problem and what are the edges that I'm not aware of? On the server side, I don't know of a lot of things that are needed at this point. You know, I think that'll take some usage to actually be able to find that out. But my goal is to really to keep things simple. So I'm hoping, you know, there won't be too much needed because I just don't want to have it do too much. I want to keep it simple. But then, you know, one of the things that I think might happen is are there other clients? So I, I've kind of been focused on the custom element side. Um, I kind of, I had somebody else internally that contributed the first version of the React hook. But, you know, are there other places where this kind of approach of let's up build a client that instead of the whole request response cycle, we just want to dispatch events and render state? If that kind of a client approach is viable in other places, you know, maybe there's a Swift client for live state, or maybe there's an Android client or whatever, those sorts of things that would probably come from the community, I would think. Well, cool. Well, where do people go to get involved or how would they contact you? 
so I'm I'm pretty easy to find uh, on on the internet. My email, you know, we we can just link that in the podcast. I'm Chris at launchscout.com. But Live State, we'll drop a link to the the Live State GitHub repo. Uh, there's just main one main repo, and hitting us up with issues or pull requests is great. We just kind of have one repo that is a, a mono repo, if you will, that has both the Elixir and the the JavaScript and the uh, all the other pieces right there. Well, cool. That sounds like a really interesting project. And thank you for coming on to help explain where this fits, like what problem this is solving. Because I totally get that, right? And I see that there is a benefit for bringing solutions like this. And especially, you know, I'm, of course, I'm biased. It's like, I love the idea of keeping it in Elixir and being able to to do that. It's very cool. Appreciate you sharing this with the community. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.